Welcome to Lawyerly, the podcast for lawyers and those who love them. I'm your host, Sean Kennedy of Herrera Purdy. Today's episode of Lawyerly is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Array. Array manages the logistics of litigation so lawyers can focus on winning their cases. Learn more at trustarray.com. That's trustarray.com. Today, we're continuing our How Are We Doing Now series, where we talk with lawyers who used to work for a big law firm called Howry before the firm collapsed and went bankrupt in 2011. In this episode, we're talking with Martin Kniff, who's our first former Howry lawyer from the firm's hub in Washington, DC, and who was a homegrown Howry product who eventually came to lead the firm's global litigation practice group. Martin has some interesting stories, including how he came to be the subject of a John Grisham novel. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Lawyerly. My guest today is Martin Kniff, who is a partner with Fields PLLC in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, tell us about what you do at Fields. So we have a kind of a unique practice in that, um, well, as you may know, I, I, I wrote a book, a treatise on damages and kind of focused on damages a lot of my career. My partner, Richard Fields, um, you know, early in his career, did a lot of very complex litigation, insurance coverage, uh, and then switched over to the litigation finance industry, where he was, you know, kind of one of the founders of that industry. He started the Juridica Fund, which was the first to go public. So we have a two-person law firm, but we're involved in some of the biggest litigation in the U.S. right now. So, you know, we're representing state of Ohio in the opioids, state of Delaware in opioids, Cherokee Nation in opioids and Juul, uh, state of Michigan in what are called the PFAS cases, uh, referred to as the forever chemical, which is one of the biggest or is the biggest environmental case in the country. So what, what we do is we partner, partner up with other firms uh, and they look to Richard to kind of line up the litigation financing, take the lead on the settlement, which he's very good at. And then I joined him, oh, I guess it's now been four or five months. Um, you know, and I, I mostly do the damages workup, uh, the, the expert witnesses on damages and support the settlement. So, um, you know, hmm. I feel bad, but I'm one of the people who has benefited the most from the coronavirus because <laughs> Richard used to be on his own and his lenders and his wife told him he had to get a partner. So I was, uh, I guess I was the logical choice. So um, the coronavirus has been very good to me. Uh, I mean, sadly, it's, it's created a lot of devastation, but you know, you do your best. That's really interesting. So maybe could you speak a little bit more to that business model there? Because it's, I think one of the impressions maybe in the industry is if you're a, uh, a, a firm with only a couple lawyers, you couldn't handle uh, large-scale litigation, much less that kind of laundry list that you just rattle off there. Yeah, so it's kind of the confluence of a couple things, and, and it's why I teamed up with Richard is that um, a number of years ago, 
I, I, I kind of thought that there's a couple things, litigation, finance, artificial intelligence, um, the trend towards virtual, which you know obviously has been exacerbated by uh, the coronavirus, we're converging to completely change the practice of law. Hmm. And I think we're more and more seeing that. So what we're able to do is kind of punch above our weight a lot because one, the, the litigation finance, you know, changes the whole equation. You know, I mean, Howie, um, for good or for ill, kind of invented scorched earth litigation, you know, in the <laughs> 60s and 70s. Um, and the thought was, you know, you could just wear plaintiffs down because either they didn't have the money or the lawyers handling it on contingency, you know, were mortgaging their houses and, and running their own credit lines to run these cases. Um, you know, and it, and it gets, you know, pretty expensive to just respond to motion after motion uh, by, you know, creative defense lawyers. So the litigation funding, you know, flips that whole equation. We, so we have, you know, as much money as we need to litigate these cases. Um, we partner with other firms, you know, that have the, the army of associates you need. So we're more doing the kind of the higher end, you know, strategic work and strategic thinking, you know, which was, is what I love. I mean, after 30 years, you know, the, the thought of another discovery dispute, you know, over interrogatory <laughs> number 34, just, you know, the, doesn't get me up in the morning. Not, you know, not that I didn't enjoy it back in the day. And then, of course, you know, the use of, um, you know, we, we, we use a lot of, uh, um, you know, cloud service stuff. Um, Factbox, Clio, things like that, where, you know, I, I mean, I literally was on a task force at Howry in the early 90s that spent two or $3 million trying to create a document management hmm. system that, you know, for $20 a month, you can replicate, right? So, you know, I, I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of, you know, people are scared of kind of going out on their own, but the reality is the tools you can get as, as cloud service stuff is usually far better than what you get in a big law firm mm. because you have legacy systems. And then, you know, you got to deal with Bob from IT, who's, you know, the only guy who knows how the software works <laughs> and things like that. So, uh, and, and two, you know, there's, you know, there's a lot of friends we have who you know, are willing to work, you know, per hour and help out. And, you know, when we get overloaded, you know, they, they jump in and, and help. So it, you know, it, it, it's been very interesting so far. Do you see the sort of fallout from the pandemic pushing more firms, you know, sort of toward that kind of model uh, as people get shed, you know, overhead gets shed, um, personnel gets shed from the larger firms? When I was at Howry, I represented cable and wireless that, that ran the largest internet backbone in the world. So, you know, I, I had to work with guys like Vint Cerf, who literally was the guy who intervented the internet, not Al Gore, but <laughs> most people consider him, you know, the, the, the guy who did it. And I always thought that, you know, when you had enough uh, broadband capacity and it was fast enough, uh, you know, that you could do video fairly easily you know, the need for an office building then just went away, right? Mm -hmm. So the conflict of two things, one is, you know, the, the all the documents being electronic, because, you know, it used to be, you know, you'd have to go downtown and open a banker's box and 
pull a file out, you know, if you wanted to actually read a document. And two, you know, you needed to talk, um, you know, to to your to your colleagues. Although I, I found, you know, when I was at Aaron Fox and the and the React Sharian firm, you know, you you talk by phone and email with people who are on the same floor as you. <laughs> yeah, and you never really saw them that much, right? So true. You know, I I. I, you know, I would go to the Metro platform in DC and just look around and go, you know, how, how many people are getting on the Metro to go downtown to plug into a different ISP? So mm-hmm. it's a long winded way of saying, you know, for a law firm, a lot of times, you know, office rent might be in the 30 or 40% of overhead, you know, and, or I'm sorry, 30 or 40% of revenue. And, you know, if you can pare that down, you know, I, I think you'll sure. see that. Yeah, it goes straight to the bottom line. Yeah, my my other idea, which was vetoed, was that um, we put all the hiring lawyers in like cheap office space in Iowa, and then just hired two or three people who were models that you know look like lawyers. <laughs> so, <laughs> so when a client come in, you know, you'd have these you know good looking you know uh, lawyer looking guys, and then everybody else doing the work would be you know where it's cheap, but. Fortunately, the firm never bought that idea. <laughs> I kind of like that idea. <laughs> <laughs> so you you referenced your, uh, your your sort of focus on damages. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that's about? Sure. I um so you know I I, I was a business major undergrad. Then I was a stockbroker, and then hmm. in an attempt to forestall my student loans before I entered law school, I took an MBA class in cost accounting. This was a class that met once a week for five hours and it was just death. I mean, <laughs> people would leave in the middle practically in tears. I remember one time the midterm, the professor was handing out the test and he goes, Martin, uh, here you go. You got a 27 on the exam. He goes, now, don't be ashamed. That was the highest grade in the class. (laughs) So uh, oddly enough, you know, I had grounding in cost accounting, which is, which is basically what damages is. And when I started my career, you know, I, I, I seemed to be the guy who would gravitate to that and, you know, work with the expert witnesses. And frankly, as I used to tell people, you know, if you don't think damages are important, go ask your client, if you know the money is important to them, um, usually is. And then, um, and, and this is kind of relates to the Howry dissolution. Um, I was a co-editor of a kind of a 600-page treatise on damages um, with uh, Chris Bushy and Chris Padilla. And what we we had all thought was there wasn't a good resource that would you know let a law firm associate kind of get going on the damages case, right? Because a lot of times I would send associates like, okay, start working the damages up. And you know, if you read damages cases, you get the you get the principles, but you don't get the recipe. Hmm. Right. It's like, you know, look, start with revenues, back out cost saved, you know, here's how you do the discounting, here's how you do the net present value. And then on the other hand, you know, a lot of the books on damages written by accountings were all recipes. You know, mm. it didn't have the actual legal principles in mind. So we wrote, um, you know, this treatise, which which took like five years to write. But as Howry was kind of winding down, 
you know, with just a couple months left, uh, there were a lot of associates sitting around. So I walked the halls and I said, listen, you're still getting a paycheck. You can work on my treatise <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, check sites. And, and, and actually, uh, uh, people were very enthusiastic to do it because, you know, if you're not doing anything, you know, mm-hmm. it can, it can be, be deathly. So, you know, and then, you know, a lot of them were on law review. That's, you know, a lot of what you do on law review is check sites and read cases and everything. So, you know, I kind of always had that focus on damages and then kind of got known for it. And, um, it's very interesting in a litigation finance space, you know, when you, when you work these cases up and do the due diligence um, for litigation finance people, they are inordinately interested in damages. Sure. Right. Because they're bankers. Yeah. And they're, and they're trying to get their money back. And uh, I, I did a workup on a international arbitration one time and the, and the guys were like, uh, we've never seen this going to work up, you know, because <laughs> usually the lawyers just back of the envelope things like, ah, oh, you know, it's, it's easily a billion. <laughs> Whereas, <laughs> you know, you have to actually come up with, you know, spreadsheets and formulas and things. So I, I, you know, I enjoy it and I particularly enjoy it not to get, get way off track on you, but, you know, a lot of times when you're doing damages, you're, you're working in the but-for world. So it does take a lot, fair amount of kind of creativity and imagination sure. to say, okay, what, you know, would have happened? And um, I'm involved in a, in a startup, um, you know, with my brother. It's a cancer diagnostics one. And when it was interesting, I was helping him with the forecast. I go, oh, wait a second, this is just, this is just damages projections. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're just, you know, you're just trying to figure out what's going to happen. So I, I enjoy it. I, I, you know, I think it's, I think it's important. Interesting. So we're going to do go in a little different order than we have on some of our past episodes and jump straight back to your time at Howry. Uh, I think of everyone I've had on as a guest, you have had, you had the longest tenure at Howry, I believe 22 years, right? Yes. Um, and in that time, you went from being fresh out of law school to heading up the commercial litigation practice group. Yes. Uh, so tell me what that was like, that sort of rise within Howry and, and your time there. Yeah, no, I, um, I, I mean, I loved the place. I started as a summer associate in 1989, and then I didn't actually even go back to law school. I stayed as a clerk and then just took two, mm. two night classes uh, at George Mason to finish. Um, and then I, um, the way Howard used to do it was your office assignments were, were always based on your seniority date. So I started full-time the day after the bar exam, one day ahead of Bennett Kelly. And for seven or eight years, I always got to pick before him on the office, <laughs> <laughs> which probably wasn't that fair, but, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I initially um, I initially did a lot of work in government contracts, and then in my third year, as a third year associate, uh, I tried the case that set the accounting standard for executive compensation in U.S. government contracting. Hmm. So we were the test case, and I think Deloitte at the time had estimated this was a like a hundred billion dollar issue for the federal government. But, you know, obviously our, our client was just kind of a medium-sized government contractor, but, you know, they had 
faith in me to try the case. Uh, it was interesting because we had big companies, you wow. know, like Lockheed and everybody calling like, do you guys need anything? You need any help? You, know, <laughs> you sure you got this? Uh, you know, and, and we, and we uh, fortunately, we tried the case and won, although part of it was um, changed by Congress. It was, it was weird because, you know, it was a great opinion and, and actually still is a great opinion. But part of it, Congress immediately passed a law and I was I forgot they could do that. <laughs> you know, I should have known that from you know third grade. But you know, you, you don't think of it as a litigator that Congress is going to change things. So you know, I, I had a great uh, you know I was I was fortunate to be involved in some some really good cases. Um, I did uh, uh, one interesting bit of trivia. You know, I did do a number of um, class actions for homeless citizens. Uh, in the District of Columbia, and became the inspiration for a character in a John Grisham book, The Street Lawyer. Really? Yeah. What, which so book? The it's called The Street Lawyer, and the character is Matt Brock because the organization we worked with uh, was Washington Legal Clinic for the Homeless. They were one of our plaintiffs and kind of the the organization you know who who we kind of worked hand in hand with on the litigation. And shortly after that trial was done, uh, John Grisham spent a month uh, with them doing research mm. for the book. So, of course, a lot of the stories <laughs> and a lot of the, the incidents were about me. And even in the book, I think they, they told me, um, uh, I guess, uh, and I obviously I read the book, but one of my jokes is in there because um, the Washington Legal Clinic people used to always ask me, like, well, Martin, what else? Are you working on? I said, listen, I'm on a $900 million antitrust case and this. And they always thought that was funny. I never knew why they thought it was funny because it was the truth. But I think in the book, the character says, oh, I'm working on a $300 million antitrust case and this. So, oh, wow. So that, the line my, actually made it into the book. <laughs> yeah. So that's my small <laughs> my small claim to literary fame. And then, um, you know, I, I obviously I, I, I had the privilege of working with Mark Wegner and that was kind of, you know, one of Mark's chief lieutenants and, you know, mm. sat in that red chair in his office and usually got ripped every morning for what we were doing <laughs> and <laughs> what we needed to do better. But I, you know, the guy was an amazing, you know, litigator and person and teacher. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I just kept moving up the ranks. I actually was made head of commercial litigation at the same time, I made equity partner. So yeah. I went from non-equity partner, equity partner, chair of commercial lit. And I was also chair, if you remember, chair of um, training and development. And I was kind of very proud of that because we, we won a lot of national awards. I thought we had a lot of good training. In fact, yeah. uh, after the firm dissolved, I can't tell you how many partners called me and said, Martin, I I got to tell you, I didn't appreciate how well our people were trained until I got somewhere else. So, yeah, so that was it. And, and then, you know, I sadly, I served on the Howry Dissolution Committee. So I literally mm. probably was one of the people who turned the lights out uh, <laughs> at the end. Oh, wow. You were, you were sort of right there at ground zero for, for all of that. Yep. Um, and, and Mark... Mark passed away not long before all of that, right? Right. He he passed away in in 2008. Um, I think a lot of people, including me, 
thought the firm never would have had to dissolve if, if Mark, you know, had, mm. had, had uh, stayed with us. And then sadly, you know, Cecilia Gonzalez became vice chair of the firm and then of course also passed away. So mm-hmm. um, that was, that was actually kind of a hidden story of the Howry problems is that five or six of the top producers in the firm had passed away in a fairly narrow window. And you would think with a firm that size, it, it wouldn't matter, but it did matter. Yeah, I, we saw that even on the West Coast with a couple of key departures even. Um, yeah. you, would, you would think that it would sort of fill in over time, but um, turns out it, it didn't really. Um, so you were in the D.C. office. Those of us in California and other places like to call it the, the mothership. <laughs> um, we were in Orange County. We had something like 25 lawyers where I think I recall D.C. had 300 plus at, at all times. Um, how would you describe the culture of Howery's D.C. office? I mean, I, I thought it was a very good culture. Um... If you go back to the 90s, and, and, and this probably predates you, um, mm-hmm. when we just had the DC office, uh, I was in charge of something called the Underground Social Committee that uh, had had a, a happy hour every Thursday, but we would also write a memo that made fun of something at the firm. Um, <laughs> and you know, it was a very, very tight-knit group of people. It was almost like the friendships you form in battle because you know, there were people I didn't know very well, but you know, if you go to trial for a month with somebody and eat meals with them three times a day, you know, even you end up after the trial, not working with them, you, you know, you have a, you have a bond, you know, a friendship sure. that, that's pretty close. So the, you know, at least the DC office, um, I thought, I, I thought the culture was very good. People were, were friendly and, and, and supportive. And there was always the kind of, you know, there were, there were a lot of people who were, you know, considered themselves trial lawyers and took pride in, you know, putting the best trial together. And you know, a lot of times I would, if their people were getting ready for trial, I would just pitch in, you know, just, mm-hmm. okay, I'll, I'll spend the weekend. Cause I know, you know, you guys would do the same thing for me. So I, I, I just loved it. I loved Every minute I was there. Hmm. So when you you think back on those years at Howry, uh, what do you think made it a place that that you love? What what made it a great place? Um, you know, it was it was the, the trial focus, um, the focus on kind of excellence, uh, but also a focus on teamwork. You know that we you know usually were involved in cases that were, you know, big enough that not one person could do it. Um, mm-hmm. And then fortunately, I kind of, you know, I worked with most of the same team members for a good length of time. So it was nice to have a team that knew how each other worked. And then too, the resources, you know, like we had um, capital economics right there. So, you know, as a damaged guy, I got spoiled where, you know, we get a new case in, I could just go down to the third floor. Let's start working up the damages. Let's talk about it. You know, I don't have to go out and retain an expert. I don't have to 
you know, block them off from, you know, making sure they don't, they don't know what, what we're thinking and protect them from testifying. You know, I just mm -hmm. had people and I had economists who were used to working with lawyers and working on litigation. In fact, I still work with Mark Glick, who was at uh, Capital Econ uh, and some other guys who were, who were there. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, the, and, and, you know, too, um, you know, I had friends at other law firms who would tell me all the time, like, you know, they were litigators and they were jealous because, you know, anything that was a shiny tool for litigation, Howie would just buy it, right? Like, you know, we had a moot courtroom, we had our own litigation graphics, we had jury consultants, we had a document management company, we had, you know, so, you know, and, and I think, you know, being in a litigation firm that long and then going to other firms, they don't run that way. You know, the, sure. the litigators sometimes are, are the poor stepchildren or, you know, <laughs> you know, kind of second to the transaction guys. And, oh, you know, why do you, you guys, why do you need that? You're never, you know, uh, you're never going to get the trial at all settle anyway. So <laughs> I, I, I think like, you know, having the litigation focus and I guess to having people who were, you know, not afraid to try new things. And, mm -hmm. and a lot of our training was that way because, you know, like the Howry boot camp was, was, you know, revolutionary. Um, and there were a lot of things that, that I think, you know, if you have a group of litigators who are, you know, willing to just try things and give it a go, uh, you know, it, make, it makes it a lot easier than, uh, you know, dealing with, uh, not to disparage them, but, you know, tax lawyers or corporate, <laughs> corporate guys who, you know, a little, little, little harder to convince to try new things. It's okay. This is a safe space. You can disparage <laughs> tax lawyers. <laughs> uh, so what's a, a career highlight for you during your years at Howry? Oh, wow. Um, you know, I, I, I think actually, you know, winning, winning trials, you know, cause, that was, you know, such a emotional effort as well as a physical effort. Um, you know, we had we had a lot of big wins, um, you know, and and uh, not really any losses. But those those were usually the highlights. Um, you know, we had uh, a series of arbitrations for cable and wireless flowing out of its acquisition of or the kind of the forced divestiture of UUNet from MCI WorldCom when it merged uh, uh, or MCI when it merged with WorldCom and those were just, you know, completely fascinating issues. Um, I kind of, I did 10 years early on with ComSat, uh, which was fascinating stuff, satellite telecommunications, you know, in a, in a monster, uh, you know, monster antitrust case. Uh, I spent a year of my life litigating whether you could call something a margarita if it didn't have tequila in it. So, <laughs> you know, the momentous issues of our time. <laughs> What's well, maybe one of your proudest contributions as a, as one of the leaders of the firm? Well, very much the training. So I, I developed, you know, with, with the help of 90 other lawyers, I guess, you know, the attorney competency model, because I hated the way evaluations were done. You know, I, I called it the Lake Wobegon system where all the kids were above average, <laughs> they, you know, and, and uh, I think the HR people went, hated me because they give me the evaluation and I go, okay, so above average, what's your cohort group? Is it every associate I work with, every associate at Howry? 
every associate across the country. Like you can't you can't mm -hmm. rank order people without knowing the cohort group. They look at me like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I was most proud of, you know, the I thought the attorney competency model ended up being, you know, a very strong piece of work. And you know, there's not a lot of jobs where you know, you can hand somebody a document and say, listen, everybody in this firm agrees, here are the competencies you need to develop. And if you can develop them, you're going to be successful here. Hmm. And as I would always tell people, by the way, if you get up to the highest level on these, tell me because I'll quit and go into the practice of law with you, right? So, <laughs> you know, so I think developing that and then the, the online, you know, university, and then, you know, we had action learning, you know, uh, we got to the point where, where every year, you know, had its own offset, offsite action learning. Uh, I think that's what I was proudest of because, you know, the, the, the thing that, that, that used to infuriate, well, always did infuriate me was, you know, I, I, I called it the, uh, the discard pile of training and, and, you know, in a law firm, you can, obviously you can externalize your costs somewhat, but, you know, a lot of the partners would just pick up associates and if they didn't like them, they would just discard them and not work with them and then pick up new associates. And then, you know, you'd, you'd have people who were, would either be let go or more infuriating would work hard for seven years and then be told, oh, you're, you're not good enough to be a partner. Mm -hmm. Like, well, wait a second, you can't. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you can't let somebody ride for seven years and not tell them, you know, where they need to be and, and, and what they need to do. So all of that kind of evaluation training, um, I mean, it never got as good as it could have been, but it was a hell of, hell of a lot better than most law firms. Mm -hmm. And I thought it, I, I tried to make it more humane, you know, to tell people, look, sure. you know, you may not, of course, one associate who I told, um, you know, look, I don't know how to tell you this. You, you, you may not have the competencies, you know, to be in a large law firm. And she goes, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to work for this online bookstore out in Seattle. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's a stupid <laughs> idea. <laughs> so Terrible shows, idea. Shows, you, shows you how smart I am. <laughs> I should have packed up and gone with her. <laughs> uh, employee number 10. <laughs> uh, so I assume you were, you're aware of sort of the legend of Uncle Howery. Um, what's the most extravagant thing you're aware of that Uncle Howery ever covered for someone? Yeah. Um, I, I, I remember early on, I guess we were either summer associates or young lawyers, but we would, we would regularly go into a, a bar that was at the old, the, the, the 1700 pen, um, or no, I'm sorry, the, the, the one on the other side of the White House, uh, and always order every appetizer. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, there were some, uh, there were some pretty good meals. In fact, when, um, uh, what is it? Bombay, one of the, the Bombay kitchen, one of the nice Indian restaurants in DC opened. And I, I think I brought so many summer associates to them. Uh, at the end of the summer, uh, the, the maitre d' gave me this like nice little bound kind of gold version of their menu and a little <laughs> plaque. And I'm like, wow, man, I've, I've spent way too much money at this <laughs> restaurant. 
<laughs> they give you an honorarium. <laughs> yeah. Well, too, the um, the firm would usually uh, cover the they, they kind of we sort of partially had a budget for happy hours, and everybody else would kick in. But there there were many times when uh, Mike Baker, who was the the bar across from the old office, would call and say, "Hey, you know, nobody cleared the tab." So I'd have to walk over there at lunch, you know, get the Jack and Bill card out and <laughs> cover the bar tab. Have you heard of something that somebody tried to get covered but got denied? Something extravagant. Yeah, the, the, the worst I ever heard of was um, one of our partners who, who shall remain nameless uh, tried to charge uh, – business development, a, a trip with him and a client to the running of the bulls in Pamplona, Spain. That and sounds legit. It <laughs> <laughs> wasn't clear why the meeting had to take place uh, yeah. there or, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe the bulls running after you was a good, good bonding experience or something. I don't know, but That's I think that was one. really the, the, the worst one. <laughs> um. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will talk about your experience with Howard's demise and where your career has taken you in the subsequent years. Great. Lawyer Lee is brought to you today by our presenting sponsor, Array. With offices throughout the nation, Array is the litigation support partner that delivers speed, accuracy, and unmatched service. Array manages the logistics of litigation so lawyers can focus on winning their cases. For information on their discovery, managed review, deposition, alternative dispute resolution, and subpoena services, visit trustarray.com. That's trustarray.com. Today's show is also brought to you by eDepose, the electronic exhibit solution for depositions. With eDepose, attorneys can use exhibits during remote depositions just like they do during in-person depositions. The best part? You don't have to learn a whole new process. Just mark, introduce, and distribute personal copies of exhibits to all participants in real time, the same way you always have. Learn more at eDepose.com. And now, back to the show. All right, let's go back to the time right before Howry went under. Um, do you remember when you personally first became concerned that the firm might not make it? Yeah, so it was probably in kind of maybe spring of 2010. You know, one of my jobs, uh, along with Eileen Billinson, was to fly out to every office, you know, and talk to the associates tell them, you know, the evaluation process is starting and here's how the competency model works and all that kind of stuff. And in going to every office, you know, I kind of got the feel that, you know, people weren't that busy and, mm -hmm. you know, there were, there were people kind of starting to, 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 to slide out the exits. Um, and I even had, you know, started, uh, you know, talking to friends, you know, just plan B mm -hmm. just in case. Um, and then, then really in the, I guess the fall of 2010, seems like things had stabilized a little bit. I know there was some progress, you know, with 
Citibank staving them off. And then it seemed like there were just too many, too many defections. Um, and then I actually, I, I think I was put on the dissolution committee uh, because frankly, there wasn't a lot of trust in Bob Riak at mm. the time. So um, Greg Cummins and I were kind of put on the dissolution committee. It's kind of, um, it's not, it's, it's, it's unusual to have a five person committee. It's usually a three person committee, but there was kind of a groundswell of, yeah, we're not, you know, I think Bob and, and Bob to his credit, I mean, you know, say what you want about his leadership of the firm at the end, which I didn't agree with, but he really did kind of go above and beyond and, and, and work very hard to make sure the dissolution was as, as uh, not as painful as it could have been. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he didn't have to do that. I mean, you know, the guy at Dewey and others, you know, they just picked up and left and they had nothing to do with it. And, you know, I know for a, pa- a fact that Bob worked, you know, extremely hard to help people get situated other places, get files transfer, get mm. things wound down, get the creditors paid off. Um, you know, a lot, of, you know, so, you know, it was unfortunate. I, you know, and then on the dissolution committee, we were working with our, um, I guess Latham was our bankruptcy counsel initially. And, you know, I'm working with those guys and I'm looking at everything and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a numbers guy and I'm like, guys, you know, we got to pull the plug and, and go into dissolution because, you know, what happens is if you keep operating and Dewey, Dewey was essentially in the same spot we were, and they went a year longer and Mm. a lot of the people were, were charged criminally because, you know, in commercial law and bankruptcy law, once you're insolvent, you you can do things that have real ramifications. And I, I still remember, um, I forget it, it was Peter Galuli at Latham, was a very good bankruptcy lawyer. You know, we'd go over this stuff. And one of our initial meetings with the partnership, you know, Bob, who, look, I love Bob, but, you know, he tends to tell people what they want to know and what they want to hear and paint way rosier picture. And Bob's going on like, well, we, you know, we might have to do this little thing called dissolution. I'm like, wait, what? (laughs) It's like, but, you know, we we can still keep going forward. And yeah, maybe we just wait on it. And I hit Galuli in the the shoulder with my elbow. I go, listen, man, you got to get up there. Tell these people they have to vote yes on dissolution. Or it creates these like very unfair tax situations for the remaining partners, mm. right? Because you could you could be saddled with, you know, huge amounts of income that you or the phantom income. You mm. know, it's just a mess if you don't do it. You can't you can't run all the way to the cliff, right? Like yep. when you're 10 feet from the cliff, you have to say stop. So Peter got up there and goes, listen guys, you got you gotta vote, you know, you gotta vote for dissolution. And then it kind of shows you how Howry was always run. I don't remember there ever being a vote on anything. Mm. So I was the secretary of the dissolution committee. I had to come up with the official roster of partners <laughs> and a way to do the vote. <laughs> so, you know, what is this you voting wanna, thing? <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it was it was it was weird because then you know I went to Aaron Fox from Howry, and and they actually I think they voted on too many things. So they mm. were always voting. I'm like. Yeah, well, this is weird, man. You know, so that's that's interesting. I mean, you said it was it was sort of messy. That's my kind of abiding impression of 
of everything as the firm was was dissolving and then the the years really afterward that it was just it got really really messy and to the to the extent even that litigation was going on until 2020 uh over over Howard's dissolution i think it's yeah. all wrapped up at this point but um what was it like for you to to be kind of involved at that at that inner circle level it it was um well it kind of two things is it was incredibly interesting legal work on kind of a 24/7 hour schedule mm. but as i tell people you know it's kind of like operating on yourself like <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting but but it's very painful um <laughs> but i thought we did you know um i mean a lot of you know one way to look at it is like you know I, I think we were able to place, you know, 95, 98% uh, mm -hmm. of the staff and lawyers. We moved millions of files, thousands of cases, closed 17 offices, including some in Europe, you know, like try firing somebody in Europe sometime. <laughs> it's, it's a criminal offense. Um, you know, and we, and we, um, you know, we did all that without a single malpractice case being filed, mm. which was, nothing short of amazing. So, you know, it's kind of, I, I kind of know sometimes how our clients feel like, because it was some of the best lawyering I ever did, you know, a good, good bit of it. I, I you know, I, I didn't get paid for um, and, and not really appreciated for, and then mm -hmm. I ended up getting sued for. So <laughs> here's <laughs> your thanks. From that one, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, okay, uh, that's fine. But you know, it it I think as as law firms dissolutions go, uh, it was actually handled pretty well because you know the people who um, you know ran the firm were involved and, and almost all the uh, the the counts you know uh, receivable came in almost all the creditors, I mean, Citibank got paid off, which, you know, of all, of all our creditors, that, that was the one I, I would have been more than happy to see get stiffed, but, <laughs> you know, they did, they did get paid off. Most people, you know, got paid off. The, the litigation was mostly out of that, um, I forget the doctrine now where, you know, lawyers leaving a firm may yeah. be liable for unfinished business. And I think the courts correctly said, look, that's, at least as far as billable hour work goes, that's, it's nonsense. Maybe contingency work, you know, I could see where you, you may need to work something out, but you know, it was, it was just an incredibly difficult trying times. And, you know, a lot of people, um, you know, I was happy to do it, but a lot of people would call me, you know, cause I had pretty good relations with people and, and, you know, they didn't want to talk to Bob. So, you know, a lot of times it was, you know, I was on the phone sort of explaining things. And then I still remember the first vote where we where Greg and I and, and somebody else blocked Bob. And he just, it almost couldn't compute that he couldn't do what he wanted to because you know, <laughs> he was used to doing that. We're like, Bob, sorry, you don't have the votes. Like, <laughs> it's not, and, but to his credit, I think he settled into that and, and, he, and he did, you know, kind of work, you know, work with the consensus of the group. Mm -hmm. so. So were you still on that committee when you when you left and went to a different firm or was there a time where you were just doing that? 
No, I, um, you know, I went from Howry to Errant Fox, and then the the dissolution committee work uh, was billed as a client of Errant Fox. Okay. As far as I was concerned, so it was just you know, but you know, to me it was like, you know, Citibank negotiated these severely discounted rates, and they had you know totally unrealistic time budget, so. It was kind of the worst of both worlds. You know, I had it as a billable matter, but, you know, it was killing my realization work. And mm. I had to put in a lot of time that just wasn't going to get, you know, billed or collected anyway. But, mm. you know, I, I, the reason I did it, uh, and this will sound maudlin, but I really didn't want to do it. But I was like, well, I, I can't face the ghost of Mark Wegner if I don't do this. <laughs> you know, so at some point you have to look yourself in the mirror and go, okay, I was involved in this thing. Mm. It's going to be painful, but I, I got to help clean it up and, 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 you know, try to alleviate as much pain as I can. And, and, you know, I work the phones to a lot of managing partners. I remember, um, Oh, um, Sandy Thomas over at Reed Smith, would keep calling me like, okay, Martin, I need, you know, three mid-level uh, associates, a junior partners. I'm like, Sandy, this isn't a pizza parlor. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you can't just call me with your order. The sad thing is, is, is he sort of could, you know, I ended up placing, you know, a lot of people at different law firms. And hmm. I, I think what gratified me the most was there were a lot of law firm leaders who called me and say, Hey, Martin, I, you know, I'm very aware of your training. You know, we've, we've looked at it. We're aware of it. And one reason, you know, we want to grab some of your associates is because we know you trained them well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that was at least, you know, somewhat gratifying and a very, very tough, you know, it, it was just, it wasn't a good situation for anybody. So. Sure. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's really interesting. I'm, I'm glad to hear kind of the, some of the back, story in that in that time frame because a lot of us you know we had already sort of moved on to something else and you you didn't have that luxury yeah. <laughs> you were you were still engaged um which i think is pretty noble actually Thank um you. so you were at errant fox for five years is that right yeah i think that sounds about right yep um and then you left Big law at that point, and you went to uh, Innovista Law. So yes. tell me about that. Yeah, so that Innovista was started by uh, two of my friends at Errant Fox, and they kind of spun it off. They had a kind of a large captive client who, um, kind of in the high tech communication space, who basically said, who figured out that. Uh, he could pay less for lawyers mm -hmm. if he if he created <laughs> kind of created his own firm. So he told these guys, "Look, you know, I you know I know going out on your own is is scary, but you know I'll guarantee you a certain amount of business and I'll backstop you." And you know we had two or three very large cases uh, related to him. So it was it was That's a lot great. of fun. Yeah, it was. Uh, and and uh, you know they were somewhat younger than me, so they were you know. And then in the kind of communications litigator, they were big tech heads. So they're the ones who kind of taught me, you know, how you can use all this uh, information and services and, and, and really punch above your weight. We, we handled, 
Um, I mean, I, you know, we, we went up against AT&T and, you know, tagged them for like 20 million. So, you know, we were, we were pretty good at, uh, you know, litigating. It was really uh, just the three of us, um, some legal, and I guess we had two associates. But one thing we did was, um, in fact, I, I let one of the partners have the website. It's called tcpadefenseforce.com. But I, I got very heavily into, you know, investigating content marketing, digital marketing. Uh, we worked with um, a service called HubSpot, which is mm -hmm. extraordinarily, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but yep. has huge capabilities. And and we created this web website that um, TCPA is, is, you know, Telephone Consumer Protection Act cases. And it took a while to get off the ground, but you know, once we kind of started popping up in in the algorithms, um, it was just amazing because we were, you know, we were we were a three partner firm, but we we were really the thought leader in that space. And a lot of big companies, a lot of big big law firms, you know, were turning to us, consulting with us. You know, mm. we were we were probably getting, you know, a solid lead a week uh, when I left, you know, from the website. So that was wow. that was really fascinating, is to kind of jump into the, the the kind of the digital marketing and the content marketing stuff. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean I've I've done some of that in my former life, but the are you talking about uh, email marketing, internet marketing, Google, you know, kind of all the above. Yes. Okay. Yeah, like like you know, SEO and I mean HubSpot's amazing because we would, you know, we we would create these ebooks and these guides and webinars. We never, we never actually got to doing a podcast. So, uh, you know, we would do these things and then we'd, we'd partner a lot of times with trade associations to get their list. But, you know, HubSpot, you could look and see like who opened it up, how you were trending, how you were trending on Google. And then you could also like your blog posts, they would analyze and go, okay, you know, mention this, this, and this, mm -hmm. you get, get a higher ranking. And then it also tell you like, how hard it would be to get first spot, you know, in certain search terms. I mean, we, we were way, we were way into it, you know, and, and it was, you know, takes a lot of work is the problem, you know, when you're, yeah. you know, you're having to grind out, you know, we, we would take turns on the blog, but you know, if it was your week, you'd have to do three blog posts a week. And, you know, we probably did a, a new ebook every other week, maybe in a, in a webinar. So that's a lot. You know, yeah, You're it's pumping a lot out the of content. <laughs> well, but you know, like a good cook, I was always like, "Hey, repurpose it, repurpose it." <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, Get six variants of the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. Yeah. Uh, so. so then you left there and you went to work with Bob Riyak. Yes. Okay, so tell me about that. Yeah, so, um, you know, I, and I had kept in touch with Bob. We're still pretty good friends. Um, and, and he had started a firm with um, Sonny Sherian. And they, the, the reason I was interested in it is Bob, um, you know, talked about some of the things, things I was excited about, like using litigation finance, mm -hmm. using AI tools, you know, um, you know and, 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 you know, representing the tribal nations. Uh, you know, which I think is ex extraordinarily a good opportunity. They've never been, you know, fully, uh, they've never fully gotten a seat at the table, you know, in the mass torts um, arena. 
Uh, so it was kind of all the things I was interested in doing, and I enjoyed my time there. We 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 went to trial in San Antonio. We got a very good result for our clients. Um, but um, you know, reason I left to well, one, you know, Richard reached out to me, and and Richard had worked with the Reactionarian firm quite a bit. We kind of partnered on stuff. We both represented the Cherokee Nation, you know. So I, I kind of worked. You know, I'd always been in touch with Richard, but we'd worked together more when I was at Reactionarian. And then kind of, I think Bob and Sonny kind of came to the decision they were going to focus more on uh, patent litigation, hmm. almost be a patent litig litigation boutique, which is fine. I mean, they have, you know, probably 10 or 15 very good patent litigators, but, you know, after 30 years, I, I can't learn anything new. So, <laughs> I, 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 but I've done I've done the damages on patent cases, uh, you know, which I enjoy. But you know, the thought of just doing damages in patent mm -hmm. cases didn't really, you know, get me revved up. So it was it was an amicable transition because we and we still actually we still do work on things together. So yeah, I kind mm -hmm. of slid over to Richard and, and, and it was, um, you know, I think it was easier too, because it was at the very start of the, the lockdown. So I hadn't been coming into the office. So then I transitioned to work, working with Richard, but I was still at home the whole time. So, you know, not much of a transition. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, 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 uh, uh, I, but yeah, I, I've, I've, I've just enjoyed working with Richard. I mean, it's probably been, um, you know, kind of one of the most interesting times of my legal career. In fact, I, I told my wife when, when, when I joined up with Richard, I said, listen, Richard's either going to make us millionaires or we're going to go into bankruptcy. So <laughs> at this point in my life, I'm, I'm really, I'm good with either one as long as, long as it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so what is your, uh, what's a career highlight for you in the post-Tower years? So probably the career highlight was um, getting 30 people off death row in Maryland, uh, which was enormously satisfying. I, I represented on a pro bono basis, uh, somebody was on death row and Maryland, um, like a, a couple different states, uh, had gotten rid of the death penalty, but didn't do it retroactively, right? So hmm. they didn't have the votes to do that. And I think Connecticut, the two or three other states that were kind of in the same boat, which kind of seems enormously unfair that your state doesn't have the death penalty, but there you are, you know, sitting on death row. So I was working with all these criminal defense lawyers who, look, I love the criminal defense bar, but they're not the most intellectual human beings uh, that practice law. And I, I kind of jumped into things and I made this argument that under the Administrative Procedure Act, the Department of Corrections had lost its rulemaking authority to say how an execution can proceed, which is actually no small issue because you know you've probably read there's different drugs, different ways that it can be used. You know you kind of you have to do it right, or or you're going to inflict a lot of pain. But I I jumped into the legislative history, um, you know, and really became an expert at it and. Um, the attorney general at the time for Maryland was also a Howry alumni, Doug Gansler. And we were junior associates together, pretty good friends. 
you know, I was like a precinct captain for all Doug's uh, uh, races and, and probably more importantly, a, a early and steady campaign contributor. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, the state of Maryland was on the other side of the case and, you know, and, and it wasn't, it wasn't ex parte because he's a lawyer and we were on the other side of the case, but, you know, I had lunch with Doug and it's like, Doug, you know, really, you know, you can execute these guys. And he's like, well, what do you got? And I'm like, well, you know, I, I came up with this thing, you know, the department of corrections doesn't have rulemaking authority. And of course the, all the criminal defense lawyers, I, I, I called it the, uh, 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 the illegal substance chart where initially they said I was smoking pot then I was smoking crack. At the end, I was like smoking crystal meth because I came up with this argument. Uh, but then when, when, when Doug had the news conference, he looked right at the camera and goes, uh, we're, 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 you know, we're commuting all these sentences. And he looks and he goes, because we've determined the Department of Corrections doesn't have rulemaking authority to do the execution. Wow. And of course, all these news reporters were like, what? <laughs> but I was like, Doug, thank you. You know, so that was, you know, that was nice. You know, I, I, I now my client later died of natural causes, but you know, I, I still chalk that up as a win. So mm. no, at, least, is... at least the day wasn't circled on his calendar. Yeah. That's, that's an impact. Um, so when did you first think I want to be a lawyer? So um, in the sixth grade, I tried out for the choir. I always went to Catholic school. And the, the guy in charge of the choir, Mr. Tapp, said, Martin, I think you might be tone deaf, <laughs> but you seem kind of smart. So we're sticking you on the debate team. So as a sixth grader, I, I actually competed on the high school debate circuit, you know, a oh, lot wow. of times against 18 year olds. And I just absolutely loved it. You know, the the analytical ability, the, the logic, the, the, you know, the kind of putting the arguments together. And, you know, I always just, you know, like as a sixth grader, I'd go to a debate tournament, you know, in a suit with a tie and a briefcase, you know, with all my evidence. <laughs> so it always just seemed like I'd be a lawyer. In fact, you know, the stuff I do, the stuff I'll be doing today and putting together a brief, probably isn't all that different from, you know, what I was doing as a sixth grader. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. Mine goes back to sixth grade as well. Yeah. Um, well, let me wrap up with a few sort of more rapid fire questions for you. What's your favorite thing to do to unwind? Oh, uh, definitely hiking. You know, I'm, I'm fortunate. I live in Montgomery County. It's a lot of trails, a lot of accessible trails. So getting outside, you know, in the trees mm. is, is an absolute must for me. Hmm. How often do you do that? Um, probably at least every other day. You know, I try to do it every oh, wow. day, but, you know. Um, how about, what's your position on lawyer shows? I try never to watch them. <laughs> you know, my, my, my brother's a doctor and he won't watch any medical shows I yeah. think for the same reason, because <laughs> you're like, that's not how it works. You know, or I remember one of the the John, early John Grisham movies, The Firm, you know, where the whole plot relies on like some, you know, he can't reveal some piece of information. 
and I'm just yelling crime fraud exception, <laughs> crime fraud exception. Like, you know, I can't even enjoy the movie because I can't suspend disbelief long enough. So, uh, I, but yeah, I, I do watch Better Call Saul, one of my favorite shows. Love that show. Love that show. Yeah, I think I'm more like you. Um, I just watched with the with my son uh, the deposition episode of The Office, and it was. It was really hard for me to watch <laughs> because it's nothing like a normal deposition. Uh, but I think a lot of people would find it funny. Um, yeah, well, I, I always enjoyed the uh, office episode where Michael Scott goes into his office and says, I declare bankruptcy. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Yes, I love that one. That does, that's not how it works, Michael. <laughs> uh, so do you have a uh, – do you play any musical instruments? I, I do not. I, I believe I actually am tone deaf. So I, I enjoy music. You know, I went undergrad in New Orleans, and, and so I love jazz. And, and, hmm. and actually one of my jobs with the student government one year was to hire all the bands, which I loved. But – uh, no musical instruments. If you were forced to learn one, what would it be? Ooh, um, probably the banjo. Hmm. I always like, as a kid, I was always intrigued with the banjo. Now, God only knows if I picked it up and tried to play it, what would happen? But you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's a good hiking instrument too. No, that's true. Yeah. Well, it, this has been a real pleasure, Martin. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's, it's, it has been an honor and a privilege for me. And I really, I love your podcast. I love hearing from uh, all my old friends. So thank you. Appreciate that. That's all the time we have for today. Big thanks to Martin Kniff for joining us on the podcast. And thanks as well to our presenting sponsor, Array. Learn more about Array at trustarray.com. Thanks also to our show sponsor, Edipose. Quick word of thanks as well to the many people who are listening and giving great feedback on the Lawyerly Podcast. Wanted to let you know that we will be continuing our How Are We Doing Now series with some more former How Are We folks, but we also have some episodes in the works where we'll be featuring some pretty entertaining lawyer stories from outside the How Are We Universe. So keep an eye out for that. Join us again next time. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Lawyerly and give us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. Production services for today's episode are by Four Hours of Sleep. And the music for the show is by Rhythmic Revival. Until next time, I'm your host, Sean Kennedy of Herrera Purdy. Mm-hmm.